Welcome to the Field of Church podcast. Our church inhales and exhales the gospel every Sunday and is excited to bring our messages to you here. Thank you for joining us and we hope God moves in your life as you listen into this feed. You know, it's, it's remarkable. You can always tell the impact of someone's life by how people mourn when they pass. It's it's an odd season, I think, for me. The last couple of years, I've just been surrounded by so much death. Just people in our congregation who have breathed their last and the weight and the heaviness of that has just reminded me that life and significance, it is seen when someone passes, you understand the impact of their life. In fact, I was just thinking the other day about my two grandparents. I think the, the way I mourned their passing illustrates this well. So I've my two grandparents, uh, my mom's dad and my dad's dad, and the way I mourned their passing was so different, and it speaks to impact. So one of my grandparents, I, I didn't know that well growing up. Uh, he's a good man, but he had some demons that plagued him, and because of those, I didn't, I didn't grow up around him very often. There was a lot of separation and tension there, and so I didn't know him very well. And I remember the day I got the news that he'd passed away. And yeah, I was sad, but my sadness was more remorse that I didn't get to reconcile with him. I didn't get to know him very well. But at his funeral, I don't think I shed a single tear because I just didn't know him. But my other grandfather, let me tell you, man, his passing was a totally different experience. His other grandfather, he was, he was a minister, and he was one of the most influential people in my life. He was an incredibly good person. He wasn't perfect, no one is, but he loved me so deeply, and he invested so much in me. This grandfather, he actually paid for my first year at Baylor University. And if you know how much that costs, that is quite the investment. But he knew I might give up my dream of going to Baylor if he didn't step in. So he invested in me so that I would do that. This grandfather was also the one who knew when I felt a call to ministry. He said I was going to need to have ministry contact. So he spent the whole day with me walking around where he used to work at, at the Texas Convention where he could get, I could get to meet other pastors and leaders. And, and it was just a great moment of making spiritual contacts that I was going to need for my future career in ministry. This grandfather of mine was also the one who called me to his house and walked me into his study that he had with literally thousands of books all around him. And he said, Mijito, I, I want to give you my library. And I said, Grandpa, you're talking about all these books? He said, every last one of them, because I know you're called to preach and I want you to have what you need. He just seemed to give so much to me. He, he encouraged me all the time. He's in the top three people who encouraged me, surpassed only by two others, my mom and my dad. And if you know anything about them, who lavish encouraged me upon, all the, all the while speaking good to me, you'll know how much my grandfather meant to me to know that he was up there with those two. He loved me and he spent so much time with me. And because of it, when I got the news of his passing, it felt like my heart had been ripped out of my chest it felt like I'd lost a hero, a pillar in my life when I found out that he'd passed. He had told me before his passing that he wanted me to preach at his funeral. And so I knew I'd have to keep my emotions together. But man, that was a hard day. But it was a beautiful day because it seemed like the whole world showed up at his funeral. There were seminary professors. There were leaders in convention. There were all these other pastors that he had mentored. There were these congregants that he led to Christ. There were these other people he'd invested in. It just seemed like it was a who's who in, in the church world who'd come to be there for his funeral because he had that much impact. I didn't get to mourn because I knew I was going to have to stand in the pulpit and preach. But it was a few days later. I was just sitting in my living room on the couch and I just wept. I mean, I broke apart and just put my hands on my face and heave wept at the loss of my grandfather because he meant that much to me. 
And I was just sitting there thinking about these two grandparents of mine and how different my experience was with each one of their passing. And it made me realize you can tell the impact of someone's life by the way you mourn when they're no longer with you. Let me tell you why that matters. This morning, we are about to see the extraordinary impact of Jacob's life by the way the nations mourned at his passing. And what we're gonna learn is just how extraordinary Jacob was, but also what it will look like for us to live an equally extraordinary life, a life of impact. We're gonna see that in Genesis chapter 49. So I want you to open your Bibles. Genesis 49, we're gonna be in verse 29 and we're gonna read on into chapter 50. Now, while you're finding Genesis 49, let me go ahead and recap for you where we ended last week because we're kind of picking up the story and moving on. So Jacob is 147 years old. He's the patriarch of the people of God. He has 12 sons and he has spent his last days because he knows he's about to die, blessing his 12 sons, speaking words of power over his sons, passing on to them the inheritance. Now it's come the moment he knows he's gonna die for sure, so he's gonna arrange his funeral and that's what takes place. Genesis 49, beginning in verse 29. Listen to what it says. It says, then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah at the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with a field from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. You know, right there, we just witnessed the, the end of an era. This has been years and years, chapters and chapters of following the life of Jacob. We were first introduced to him back in Genesis chapter 25. Now here we are in chapter 49, moving on in the last chapter, chapter 50, and it's about this man, Jacob. Now stop and think about that for a second. 25 of the 50 chapters of the book of Genesis are about Jacob and his family. This dude was a legend. And what you're about to see is he got a legend's funeral. I want you to read about how they mourned in his passing so you can see the impact this man had. Let's keep on in chapter 50, verse one. Here's what it says. It says, then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. 40 days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him for 70 days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please go up and bury, let me go up and bury my father, and then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh and the elders of his household and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mitzrayim. It is beyond the Jordan. And thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave at the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, 
Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Now stop there. So I hope you can, in reading this, understand what took place. That brother just got the funerals of all funerals. I mean, this was such a spectacle, a lot of pomp and circumstance. It says that not only did the Egyptians mourn for 70 days at the passing of Jacob, it says that when it was time for his funeral, in verse 7, it says, yeah, it wasn't just Joseph and his family that went up. It says that with him went up also the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. Now, you probably don't know how important that is because you hear servants and elders and that doesn't make any sense to you. But the servants of Pharaoh weren't like maids and butlers. This is talking about the officials in the land. These are high, powerful positions. These, these are people who carry a lot of weight and power in the land of Egypt. And when it talks about the elders of the land, it's referring to the dignitaries. This is the who's who of Egypt. And they are all going multiple days traveling down to the land of Canaan just to be there to pay respects for the man Jacob and his passing. Not just that, if, if you go off to verse 9, it says, and there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. So when it speaks about chariots and horsemen, now this is referring to the military. So it wasn't just the officials and the dignitaries, it was the generals and the captains and all those people who went as well. It was this massive processional, thousands upon thousands of the richest and most powerful of the land of Egypt who all go down there, multiple day journey, just to pay homage to this man Jacob. What's interesting is that Joseph never even asks for that. Joseph just says to Pharaoh, let me go so I can bury my father Jacob in the land of Canaan. And it was at this simple request just to go that Pharaoh says, well, I'm not just gonna let you go. I'm gonna send the most important people in the land with you to show and pay our respects for this guy Jacob. Which is really crazy if you remember back in Genesis 46, we learned that sheep herders were an abomination to the Egyptians. And here is this unknown sheep herder from a different country. And Egypt sends the most powerful, most important people in the land to go over there and pay homage to this man at his funeral. There's a side when you read this going, wait, why in the world would they do this? Well, if you've been following along in the story of Joseph, you know why. Because it was Jacob and his family, his son Joseph, that saved Egypt from all their troubles. The famine that was coming made them wealthy and powerful and rich. In fact, we heard just a couple of weeks ago, Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And when he prayed that blessing over him, Pharaoh multiplied. And they knew that it was Jacob and his family that brought so much blessing. They knew, they didn't know Abraham's blessing that had come so many years before, but they were experiencing Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, when God said, through you, Abraham, and your descendants, will all the nations be blessed. They knew they were experiencing blessing from Jacob and his family. And so when it came time for his passing, Pharaoh said, we're all going to send these important people over there so they can know how, how much they matter to us. It was a sign of incredible respect from the mightiest nation in the world. But really what shocks me isn't just the Egyptians' response, it's the Canaanites' response. Now remember, the Canaanites were the ones who lived in the promised land. The very people who were going to have to be dispelled one day for Jacob's family, his, 12, his sons who become the 12 tribes to take that land. Listen back in verses 10 and 11, what it says about the Canaanites. Verse 10, it says, When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mitzrayim. It's beyond the Jordan. So it says the Canaanites, when they see all this pomp and circumstance, and here are these generals, and here are these people of incredible importance, and all this wealth and splendor, 
for this one man, they know this guy must be important because you can always tell, like I said at the beginning, the impact of a person's life by the way people mourn their passing. And the, the, the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land are going, holy cajoles, who is this guy? Look at all this. This guy must be huge. This guy must be important. And they pay homage to Jacob as well. Now, this, this tells us a simple truth about Jacob. And it's that he was absolutely extraordinary. To which you will say to me, well, Jason, that's great. Thank you. Uh, I didn't need this sermon to know that Jacob was extraordinary. I know his name is in the Bible. I know he's one of the patriarchs. And that's a good truth to know, Jason. But can I be honest with you? So what? I'm just trying to live life, Jason. I'm just trying to make it happen. I've got so many problems in my life. Knowing that Jacob was extraordinary doesn't help me in the least bit. Why are you telling me this? Listen, if that question is crossing your mind, I want you to know it's a great question. But it's not one you need to ask me. It's one you need to ask Moses because Moses is the one who wrote the book of Genesis. Now stop and think about this for a second. Moses could have written anything about the people of God and yet he decides to put a story in the book of Genesis about Jacob's massive funeral. And I think we have to ask the question, why? Why would Moses focus in on this particular story? And maybe even more importantly, why would Moses emphasize Jacob's passing when he didn't do that with Abraham and Isaac? If you were to go back to Genesis 25, we hear about Abraham's passing. And it's just like three verses. It says that you know, he breathed his last. He lived like 175 years old. And then it says he was buried by his sons, Isaac and Ishmael. When you get to Genesis 35, you hear about Isaac and his passing. He gets one verse, poor brother. He breathed his last and he was buried by Jacob and Esau. That's it. Then you get to Jacob. And he gets a whole half chapter about this massive funeral that he gets and all this, this focus in on him. And you have to ask the question, why? Why so much attention on Jacob? And I think the answer to that is such a revolutionary thought. It's because Moses knew this is exactly what the nation of Israel needed to hear because of where they were. So I'll give you a little brief history lesson. So they were in the land of Egypt. Let's just imagine down here is the land of Egypt. And they had been slaves for 400 years until God raised up Moses. And they have the 10 plagues. Finally, Pharaoh says, okay, you can go. They, they cross the Red Sea on dry ground. Many of you know that story. And then they enter into this area down below called the wilderness. And they wander around in this wilderness for 40 years. Why? Because they had sent spies into the promised land up here. And the spies came back with a bad report. There are giants. We can't take it. And because of their lack of faith, God punished them, saying that entire generation is going to die out. So they wander down here in, in this wilderness area. And then after 40 years, they come over here to this east side of the Jordan River. So if you think about the layout, you got the Sea of Galilee, you got the Dead Sea, and you got the Jordan River that goes between them. And so after wandering down here, they end up on the east side of the Jordan River. But the promised land is on the west side of the Jordan River. And so here they are. And Moses is watching these 12 tribes decide we're not going to go in there because they're still afraid. They're looking over the Jordan River and they know there are Canaanites, there are giants, there are Amorites and Amalekites and Hittites and Jebusites and they're scared to death about all the nations over there. And so these tribes are going, well, you know what? The east side of the Jordan River, that's not so bad. And so Reuben decides my tribe is going to settle here. Gad and his tribe settles there. Half the tribe of Manasseh settles there. All on the east side of the Jordan River and Moses is watching the people settle for something so much less than what was promised. They were promised a land flowing with milk and honey, but they're scared to go over there. They don't want to cross the Jordan River, so they're settling for the east side. And that's when Moses says, guys, 
before you settle over here because you're afraid to cross the Jordan River, let me remind you about something that happened to your forefather, Jacob, our patriarch, the lineage we come from. This guy was so magnificent that whenever he died in Egypt and he was carried back to the promised land, the entire nation of Egypt with all their generals, all their dignitaries, all their officials go up to mourn him and bow down before him and pay homage to our forefather, Jacob. He said, don't you forget your lineage. And not just that, he says, even the Canaanites, the very people that you're afraid of, when they saw what had happened, it says they too bowed down and paid homage to Jacob, our forefather. And he's trying to get them to remember, if God did that in the past, don't you think he won't do it in the future? You see, here was the Israelites' problem. They had been slaves for 400 years in Egypt. They'd been wandering around. They didn't have military might. They didn't have wealth. They weren't a mighty army. They were just a bunch of tribes trying to live well and they were looking in the land and they were scared because they'd lost their identity. They were having an identity crisis. They were looking in the mirror and they were seeing slaves. They were seeing people who were weak and menial with no power. And Moses is saying, look back at your lineage. Look back at who you are. You come from the line of Jacob. You come from the one everybody bowed down to. Don't be afraid. Walk into the land. Receive the promises. Now, I think there's an incredible truth for you and me in this particular passage. Because I think there are a lot of times that we're just like those Israelites on the east side of the Jordan River. We're, we're living this life and there's a promised land. God has promised us blessings. God has said, I want to give you something called an abundant life. Read this book. It'll tell you all about it. A life of purpose and significance. A life of miracles and power. A life where you have abundant joy, where you have unending peace. This incredible life. A wellspring of life. And we know this book promises that. But we know it's going to require a lot to get it. And there's risk and there's danger and there are obstacles and we're afraid. And we just don't think we measure up. And so here we are on the east side of the Jordan River. And we know we need to cross the Jordan to get the promises. But we're going, you know what? That's all great. I'm glad this book says that. But I'm just trying to let my life not blow up in my face. And so maybe I'm good enough over here. Well, at least we're not slaves anymore. Maybe we don't have the promises, but at least we're Okay. Just like the Israelites were settling for good enough, I'm afraid there are so many of you watching this and you're settling for good enough. God has planned extraordinary for you and you are settling for ordinary. And how sad it is when we settle when God has so much more for us. I wanna suggest to you that if you're settling for ordinary when God has extraordinary for you, it's because you have spiritual amnesia. You've forgotten three things. I want you to write these three things down because I want you to know the danger it is if you keep on forgetting them. Number one, you have forgotten who you are. Number two, you have forgotten what your God can do. And number three, you have forgotten how much better extraordinary is than ordinary. I want to take those one by one. I want to deal with them because I don't want you to forget. The first thing, we have forgotten who we are. This is exactly what he was dealing with here. Moses was trying to help the Israelites remember who they are. They thought they were slaves. They thought they were nobodies. They thought they were weak. And he's saying, don't you forget who you come from. You come from Jacob. You come from the one that everybody bowed down before. You come from the one that when he died, all of Egypt came to pay homage to him because he was that impactful. That's who you are. Don't forget who you are. Don't be afraid of them. Remember who you are. 
And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, all the more, I want to tell you, don't you ever forget who you are. You are somebody who was created in the very image of God. You bear the very fingerprint of God upon you. And if you believe in Christ Jesus, then I want to talk to you about your lineage. It's not just from a man that some Egyptians bowed down to or some Canaanites bowed down to. Your lineage is the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus himself. And let me tell you the end of the book. Let me tell you how the story ends. One day there's going to come a moment when it says a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the lineage you come from, from the one who conquers, the one that not just a couple of nations, but every nation, every tongue, every tribe will bow down to. Don't you ever forget who you are. You have been adopted into the family because of the work of Christ Jesus on the cross. You have been given a seat at the great banquet table and nothing can take that away from you. You are royalty, not because you're good enough, but because Christ redeemed you. And he didn't redeem you to be ordinary. He redeems you to be extraordinary. Don't ever forget who you are. But there's a second thing I don't want you to forget. I don't want you to ever forget what your God can do. This is exactly what Moses was dealing with. They'd forgotten the miracles of God. They'd forgotten what their God can do. And, and so Moses says, guys, remember the story. Here's this guy, Jacob. He's a nobody. He's a sheep herder. And yet God so elevated him that whenever he died, the Egyptians and the Canaanites and everybody else came to pay homage to him. That's a miracle of God. He's saying, guys, don't you forget what our God can do. The whole reason he's been telling them the story of Joseph is to remind them of the impossible power of God. Here's this guy who was rejected by his own brothers. Here's a guy who was a, a convict, a slave, and yet he rises to the second highest in the land of Egypt. Why? Because that's the power of our God. And Moses is looking at the Israelites saying, don't be afraid of the people in the promised land. Don't be afraid. God can conquer them in a moment. It's not up to you and your power and your might to conquer them. You serve a mighty God who could never be defeated. And he was telling him, don't you forget what your God can do. And Christian, I want to say the same thing to you. Don't you dare forget what your God can do. Because we've seen even greater power in our God through the cross of Jesus Christ. We've seen a God who loves us enough to take on flesh that through death he could conquer death. That when he sacrificed himself on the cross, there is not a sin you could commit or anyone could, could commit that he cannot redeem and forgive and overpower. If death could not overpower him, nothing can. He was resurrected from the dead and showed us infinite power. That's the God we serve. And we must never forget what our God can do. Listen, I know there are some of you watching this right now and you're so scared. You're scared about your life. You feel like you're drowning in this ocean and there's nothing that's gonna save you. All you see are obstacles and walls and giants in the promised land and you're overwhelmed right now. But let me remind you of something. You're not the one who has to overcome your obstacles. You serve an obstacle smashing God. You serve a God who was faithful in your past and he'll be faithful in your future. You just gotta trust him. So listen, stop looking at the walls that are in front of you and look up at the God who tears down walls. Stop looking at the giants in the promised land and look up to the God who can squash a giant with his pinky. Stop looking around at all the impossible things in your life and look up to the God who doesn't even know the word impossible. Don't you ever forget what your God can do. Listen, 
don't ever forget who you are. And don't ever forget what your God can do. Because when you remember those two things, then you'll never settle for ordinary because you'll know you were created for extraordinary. That's the third thing we gotta be so cautious of. I'm afraid we've forgotten how much better extraordinary is than ordinary. I'm afraid we've settled for so much less. This is what Moses was trying to teach the people. He says, look at the life of Jacob. Here was Jacob. He's in the land of Goshen in Egypt. He's got money. He's got possessions. He's got his family. Things are good in Egypt. But before he dies, he says, don't leave my bones in Egypt. Take them back to the promised land. Why? Because that's the land of promise from God. That's extraordinary. Yeah, this is good, but it's not good enough for me. God's promise is extraordinary. I want my bones to go back. What he was saying is that we should never settle for anything less than the promises of God. God has called us to more. And I'm afraid there's so many of us and we settle for less than extraordinary because we think ordinary is good enough. And God is saying, no, I want extraordinary for you. But listen, when I say extraordinary, I'm not talking about big old mansions and sports cars and big bank accounts and life being easy. There's nothing easy about extraordinary. I mean, look back at your own life. All the most extraordinary things of your life all came at a cost. There was not a single one of them that was easy. But every single one of them was worth it. And the extraordinary I'm talking about is a life that matters. A life of impact. A life of miracles. A life of power. A life where you look back at the end and you go, I lived it well because God moved. God has said, I want to give you that. Don't settle for ordinary when I have extraordinary for you. But I look back at my own life. And I know that some of the greatest moments of my life were when I decided to cross the Jordan River and say, I'm not going to settle for ordinary. I want to see the promises of God. I want to see extraordinary. I can think about the adoption of my two children. I remember my adoption of my son, Max. It was, it was a hard journey to take. At the time, my wife and I, we had two biological girls. And I mean, life was good. We were a good family. We didn't need anything more. Everything was great. And then God said to Virginia, my wife first, that we were supposed to adopt this little boy, Max. And I had all the reasons not to do it man, this is going to be hard. It's going to cost tens of thousands of dollars to adopt him. And he's got unique needs that we might not be able to handle. And I don't know if this is going to disrupt our, our good life we have right now. And God was saying, Jason, wake up. Don't settle for ordinary. I've got something extraordinary for you. A little earlier this month, we had the great privilege of celebrating 12 years of my son Max and our family. And let me tell you, there is nothing ordinary about that young man. He is such an inspiration to me because he is absolutely extraordinary. The things that he can do, his personality, the way God is using him. And I would have missed seeing all of that if I'd chosen to settle for the east side of the Jordan River and say, well, that's going to be too hard. This is good enough right now. And God is saying, Jason, look back and realize extraordinary is always worth it. I was thinking about my daughter, Jovi. We adopted her three years ago. Many of you know the story. You know the hardship. When God called us to adopt her, we knew things were going to be difficult, but we didn't even know the severity of it. And I remember three years ago being over the first few months and she would reject me. She wouldn't look at me. She wouldn't talk to me. Anytime she saw me, she would run off screaming and it ripped my heart apart to see this little girl so scared of me when I just want to love her. Just a month ago, we had our gotcha day when she'd been with us for three days. And during our gotcha day celebrations, we watched the home videos of when we adopted our children. And, and so we were looking at the video of adopting Jovi. 
and I was sharing in the video, and my heart was hurting, and I said, Jovi, I'm gonna tell you something right now that you don't understand, but hopefully one day you will. I said, Jovi, I love you, and I cannot wait for you to understand my love. And as I was speaking that on the video we were watching, my daughter Jovi was sitting in my lap, and she looked up at me. She says, Daddy, I love you too. Responding to the video I had recorded three years before, wanting her to love me, and here she is loving me back. Church, that's extraordinary. And I would have missed every single bit of it if I had been scared of the journey, if I had looked at the obstacles and the giants and the walls and the danger and the risk. And God has shown me over and over that whenever I say, God, I don't settle for ordinary, I want your extraordinary, God shows me it's worth it. But what about you? Where are the places in your life where you're settling for ordinary? Where you're saying, well, this is just good enough for me. Because God is saying to you, good enough is never good enough. You weren't created for good enough. Christ didn't die for good enough. He died for extraordinary in your life. And he's saying, would you be willing to trust me? Don't settle on the east side of the Jordan River. Walk over that river. Go into the promised land and watch what only I can do. So what is it in your life right now? that you're scared to take a step forward in? Where are you not willing to risk? What steps are you not willing to take? And are you willing to say to God right now, God, I don't know what this is gonna feel like. I don't know how much this is gonna hurt. I don't know what this is gonna cost. But I wanna experience extraordinary, so I'm willing. Are you willing to be bold enough to say that to God? It'll only happen when you remember who you are and what your God can do because that's when you'll settle for nothing less than extraordinary. I pray as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper that you'll look inside your heart and your faith will be built enough to say, okay, God, I want to experience your extraordinary. I'll take whatever risk it is to get it. If you want me to go somewhere, I'll go. If you want me to do something, I'll do it. If you want me to sacrifice something, I'll sacrifice it because I want to experience extraordinary. When we take the Lord's Supper, we're getting the reminder of why we can have faith. We're getting a picture of extraordinary infinite God taking on flesh to die to save you and me. That's extraordinary. But as we prepare to celebrate that, God is saying, look inside your own heart and get ready to give up ordinary so you can have extraordinary. But before we take the Lord's Supper, let me say this. There are some of you watching this right now and you will never experience extraordinary in your life because you have yet to place your faith in Christ Jesus. You have, for whatever reason, yet to say, I'm willing to go all, all in with the Lord. And here are some of the reasons why. You don't know the cost. You don't know how hard it's going to be. You don't know what God's going to demand of you. You don't know if you're ready to do this, and so you're staying back. But if you look at your life, you'd have to admit you're so tired of being afraid, so tired of feeling like your whole life is one obstacle after another after another. You're so tired of looking back at your life going, man, ordinary is a good day for me. It only goes down from there. You're so tired of feeling like your life is just settling for less than what it should be. Listen, the reason why you're fed up with it is because you weren't created by God for ordinary. You were created by God for extraordinary. But you'll never experience that until you take a step of faith. You know, there was a moment when these Israelites, they were on the east side of the Jordan River. And there was a moment where they were, they were have to cross over that Jordan River, but it required a first step. And it says that in the scriptures, whenever they took that first step and their foot 
touched down on the Jordan River. It says, immediately and miraculously, the waters separated. You see, it was that first step into the Jordan that brought the miracles of God. And here's what I want to say to you. Your faith in Christ requires a first step. It requires a moment when you say, I'm willing to confess my sins and my rebellion against God. I can't save myself. I need you, God. And then you say, Lord, take over my life. Save me and be my king. Be my ruler. That's the step that opens up the miracles of God. And so I want to ask you, if you're watching this and you haven't taken that step, to take this one step. This is your step into the Jordan River. I want to ask you to do something for me. I want you to, to go to your computer or to grab your phone and go to fielder.org slash next step, just like you see right there on your screen. Or you can text the word next step to 94253. And you'll fill a little quick form out that'll let us know that God is moving and that you're ready to take that step because you want to see the miracles of God. You want to experience extraordinary. It begins with a step, one step. I pray you'll take that step. A pastor will reach out to you and pray with you and minister to you. Whatever it is, if you're saying, I'm ready to be baptized or I'm ready to follow Christ or I just need someone to pray with me, take that step. That's when you'll see the miracles of God. I pray you'll do it. But listen, all of us right now need to respond to the Lord. So as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, what way do you need to say, I'm sacrificing ordinary because I'm not going to settle for anything less than extraordinary because I know who I am in Christ and I know what my God can do. So prepare your hearts. And when this song is over and you finish responding, I'll lead us in the taking of the Lord's Supper. Get ready for it.